All right, welcome back to the Reformed Rant, where we take up the most pressing theological, philosophical, and social issues of the day without regard for pagan values or sensibilities from a distinctly Christian, Reformed, or Reformed Christian perspective. Today I'm going to rant about uh, Evan Menton and his so-called response to my critique of his supposed evidence for prevenient grace. And as typical of Arminians, um, Evan Menton, uh, for the most part, ignores my critiques, runs right past them, accuses me of failing to uh, effectively rebut his system, and uh, claims for himself victory. This is typical of these young guys who focus on, uh, let me just give you a, a word of, of advice. Anytime you run across a Christian website that has the word intellectual or cerebral or anything to do with the cognitive powers of human reason, Enter that website with a great degree of caution and discernment. For the most part, these kinds of websites are put up by young men who have an, an absolute fascination with intellectual acumen. And they think that if they, if they uh, mix in all types of different philosophical angles, concepts, and arguments that they are rescuing Christianity from the simple-minded and from the notion that Christianity is just a simple religion. Foolish, in fact. Scandalous where the intellect is concerned. What they do not realize is that this is exactly how Paul describes the world's thinking of Christianity. So if you're embracing Christianity and the world is saying that's foolishness, that's scandalous, it's offensive to the intellect, um, you might just be embracing the, act, the right version, the biblical version, the authentic version of Christianity. So watch out for these guys. Uh, today I'm going to offer up, instead of a written blog, I'm going to do a podcast on some of Minton's responses, and I'm going to demonstrate that Evan Minton is very likely, without realizing it or not, far more Pelagian in his theology than he is even classic Arminian. He has been backed into a corner on a number of occasions, as most Arminians do eventually get backed into corners when they're interacting with Reform people who know how to exegete the text. And as a result, they end up coming up with all kinds of doctrines and theology ideas that run contrary to, um, let's say, biblical Christianity and even classic Arminianism. And Minton does the same thing. Like an angel, walk like an angel, talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise, or yes, you are, devil.
right, I'm going to say this one more time so that I'm, I'm really crystal clear. I do not believe that non-reformed Christians, people who are not Calvinists, are, I do not believe they are heretics. I do not question their salvation. I do think that their error is more serious than even most modern Calvinists admit. And if you look at the problems in the church, in our churches, they are coming from, for the most part, Arminian, the Arminian way of thinking or a inconsistent Reformed way of thinking. And by inconsistent Reformed, I mean there's far too much Arminian in that person's Reformed uh, professions, confessions, uh, for it to be consistently Reformed. And it is through that inconsistency that these errors enter our churches. I will also say this. It is my view that uh, Arminians who really jump in with both feet and get deep into articulating, thinking through, defending Arminianism, and who really um, work hard to be consistent Arminians, almost always inevitably, if they push to the logical end, land in heresy, outright heresy. And I do believe based on my interactions with Evan Minton, that his views rise to the level of heresy. And I will cover that at the end of this podcast. So let's jump into the supposed rebuttal from, from Minton. Now, he, he left a comment on my blog and basically implied that I had uh, rode off into the sunset because it had been so long since he'd heard from me. How long had it been? Six days. Okay. Just in case Evan Minton doesn't realize it, hopefully he'll listen to this podcast, I have other issues to deal with. Plus, I do have a full-time job. I am a human resources professional in the financial services industry. I'm also a certified financial planner. So, um, I do have a demanding full-time job, even in the middle of COVID-19. So, uh, Evan isn't at the top of my list. In fact, he's barely on my list. And why he thinks that I should respond to him within 24 to 48 hours is beyond me. But I am responding to him now. All right. Evan has uh, written several articles over at the Society of Evangelical Arminians. And if you are a consistent... Arminian, then there's no such thing as an, as an evangelical Arminian. Uh, there are only inconsistent evangelical Arminians because they do not take their Arminianism to its logical conclusions. They stop long before they get there, and they live with uh, inconsistency in their system. What kind of inconsistency? Just one example. The Arminian will tell us that Jesus died for everybody, that God desperately wants to save everybody. And they will admit that you cannot be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet, God, in for some reason, is unable to get everybody the gospel in order for them to be saved, even though he really wants them to be saved. So you're stuck with this 
this inconsistency in Arminian thinking that Jesus really did atone for everyone's sins, which is absolutely absurd to even say that. It means you do not understand what the word atone means. There's there's an idea of potentiality in how Arminianism defines the word atone that, he, that, that does not exist in the biblical text. It's not present in that, in that word, period. In propitiation, uh, kafar, it's not there. Atone means to cover, to remove. Okay. So that's just one example of um, what I'm talking about with the inconsistency. So Minton goes through these four facts that infer prevenient grace. The first one, he says that uh, I concede the point. What is the first one? Men are totally depraved and cannot repent without the aid of of grace. Okay, so Minton says that I concede the first point, but with qualification. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> you don't concede a point if you are taking issue with the point. Okay, Evan? You don't concede a point if you're taking issue with something in that point. So Minton says that I conceded the first point, but I take issue with the phrase of aid of grace. Well, if I'm taking issue with the phrase aid of grace, then I'm not conceding the point. See, this is the kind of nonsense and stupidity that we see going on with these Arminians. And Minton is no exception. Total depravity does not mean that men can repent, but only with the help of grace, only with the aid of grace. That just assumes his claim. So when he says men are totally depraved and cannot repent without the aid of grace, that assumes his point. It doesn't prove anything. Now, he tries to put together some sort of an argument that will prop up this view, okay? He brushes off my criticism as, uh, what's the phrase he used? Semantic nitpicking. This is just, he, he says, but this is just semantic nitpicking, all right? Uh, is it really semantic nitpicking? No. Now, the nature of grace was not only extremely important to Augustine, it was the sticking point between the Reformers and the Catholics. Minton apparently hasn't a clue how essential a biblical understanding of the nature of grace is to understanding the issues that are involved in Christian salvation. Second Timothy 2.25 says, We should correct with gentleness those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance is a gift from God. 
that God grants to those whom he chooses. Read Romans 9 again, Mr. Minton. Hebrews 12, 17 says that Esau sought repentance with tears and there was no room given for repentance. Repentance itself is a gift of grace and is the product. It is the product of a prior work of God that we call regeneration. Regeneration always results in repentance. This being born from above, born again. And we're going to come back to this doctrine, the new birth, at the end. Because it is the new birth and how the new birth works according to biblical Christianity that Evan Minton and a number of Arminians actually reject. And that, my friend, is heresy. So be very, very careful. The 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith at section 6 4, paragraph 6, section 4 says, All actual transgressions arise from the first, this first corruption, the fall. By it we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good, and we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. Totally, completely. That's what total depravity means. It means that there isn't a part in the human being that would be inclined to God and that there isn't anything in us that would be interested in doing anything that would be pleasing to God as its primary aim. Nope, we're totally depraved. We are in love with evil, in love with sin. Now, John 6, says, No man can come to Christ unless God brings him to Christ. That's what draws means, folks. God does not aid man in coming to Christ. God brings him. Now, Evan Minton and other idiot Arminians who just for some reason can't get their head around this, will say, well, Calvinism teaches that God brings people to Christ against their will. He forces them. We do not teach that. We don't believe that. Well, what do we believe? We believe God changes the will in regeneration. God gives them a new will, like he gives them a new heart, Evan. That's what happens. That's Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. It's not philosophical Christianity, although it will work its way into one's philosophy soon enough if one embraces the truth of Scripture. Second, what happens then? Christ will raise that man up on the last day. Who? Those that God brings to Christ. They will be raised up on the last day. Now, what Evan does to this verse, he wants you to believe the following. He wants you to believe that God knows what you're going to do with the gospel. Yet, knowing that you're going to reject the gospel, God is still going to try to woo you. Now, when I say woo, when the Bible says that men reject God's will, God's purpose for, our purpose for existing, we reject that. What is our purpose for existing? To glorify God 
to image God. We reject that. Okay? That is resisting God's will. All men in an unregenerate state will always consistently everywhere reject and resist God's will. That's Calvinism. That's total depravity. That's biblical Christianity. Why? We have a heart of stone. There is no fear of God in us. There is nothing in us that inclines us to follow God. Evan says prevenient grace, which is actually, when you really take it to its logical end, it's going to end up much closer to Pelagianism than most people think, or real, logically speaking. Evan wants you to think that God bringing people in John 6, 44, is God wooing people. There's no wooing in the text. There's no wooing. There's no Holy Spirit coming in and, and, and doing everything he can to tug at your heart and persuade you to follow Christ. And hopefully, you will be the difference maker in your own salvation. Everybody can be. Everyone's given provenient grace according to Evans. So the real difference then in who comes to Christ and who's, who's elect and who's saved isn't God, it isn't Christ, it isn't the Holy Spirit, it isn't even supernatural. It's you. You're the difference. Every, every, everything else is equal. The reason you ended up following Christ is located somewhere in you, not in God. That's what prevenient grace does. What they're trying to do is get God off the hook. They haven't gotten God off any hook. Why? God isn't on a hook. He, 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 Evan even actually in, his, in one of his articles talks about Christ wooing. Does Christ woo the bride or does he ravish the bride? Notice this modern American idea of wooing a bride. Go back to antiquity and ask yourself the question, did, did men woo women like modern American men do today? Date, and if everything's hunky-dory, they got married. No, that's not what happened. Those marriages were arranged. There was no wooing brides. Yet Evan takes a modern concept and inserts it into the text and tries to get us to believe that this is how Christ does it too, like modern American men do it. It's ignorant top to bottom. And I'm sorry if you don't like that bluntness, that directness, but that's exactly what it is. The language is Western, it's modern, it's completely detached from the social setting in which it was written in Ephesians chapter 5. All right, let's move on. All right, now we get to draw our drag. Evans says, I find it funny that some people who say that Calvinism does not teach God forces people into heaven, nevertheless say that the Holy Spirit's work drags people to repentance. 
and he says, which is it, Mr. Calvinist? Does God force people to be saved or not? You can't have it both ways. Evan is assuming that drag, the word drag in the Bible, or even in modern English, ipso facto, must mean forcibly moving someone from here to there. But if Evan just bothered to do any kind of lexical work whatsoever, instead of quoting John Walton on the very, very basic concept that context determines meaning more than any other single factor, uh, which is just completely goofy to write because everyone knows this and he knows that I'm seminary trained and of course I know this, anybody knows this, yet that doesn't seem to stop him from bringing it up. So Evan, let me help you out here. If I'm injured and I cannot walk, is it possible that a fireman could be described as dragging me to safety? And if so, and I think the answer is yes, that's very possible that that would be an accurate description. The fireman dragged me to safety. Uh, do I have to be unwilling to be dragged to safety, Evan? Do I have to be forced or can I be willing to be dragged to safety. Is that possible? Think about a person who's in a fire and still alive but passed out due to smoke inhalation. Can that person be dragged out of the house and rescued? Would you consider that an act against someone's will? Would you consider that, that after being rescued from that fire that they would be, they would feel violated in some way? No, you wouldn't, and neither do we. See, God changes our heart. That's what it means to be born again. That's Evan, that's Christianity. If you reject that, you don't believe Christianity. You don't believe the gospel. You don't. A appealing to a range of meaning isn't going to help Minton in this case because the word... Uh, ekluo never means wooing, nor is it ever used in the sense of trying to bring something. It always means mission accomplished. John 18, John 21, John 16. Will, the human will, doesn't enter the equation. It's a red herring. Now, does John 12, 32 mean that all men without exception will be wooed to Christ or brought to Christ? Well, first of all, we got to go back and establish draw never means woo. That idea is foreign to that word in antiquity. There's no hint of that element in the definition of the word ekluo. Most men in history not only were not drawn to Christ in the way Minton describes, they had no idea who he was, never heard of him. That's a problem. If you say John 12, 32 means to every single individual person without exception, which is what you have to do if you're going to take it in a wooden literal sense, which is what Evan wants to do here. Why? Because it props up his theology. Now you've got a problem. Jesus lied. 
So it cannot mean all men without exception. What he's talking about is his manner of death. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. And when he's lifted up on the cross, he's going to draw all men to himself. All men without exception? No, that's universalism. All men without distinction. All men, not just Jews, all men are going to be drawn to Christ. There will be no people group excluded from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point. It comports with Joel 2.28 and Acts 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All men who come to the Father will do so through Christ. This is the meaning of John 12.32. This is where Arminians are pushed into heresy because they end up claiming that men can be brought to faith apart from the gospel. And it quickly deteriorates into a pernicious heresy. Look, guys, if you want to say that the gospel of Jesus Christ saves, but that a person doesn't have to hear the name of Jesus or even hear the gospel in order to be saved, you've just made that phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation, about as meaningless as it can possibly be. It no longer means anything. This is where these guys end up. And it's where Evan Mitten ends up as well. Now, Minton moves on to Matthew, let's see, 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often? It's as if Arminians don't realize that Calvinists know that this is in the Bible. We know it's there, guys. You keep bringing it up. We know it's there, and we know what it means. Of course, Jerusalem was not willing to follow God. How many times do we see God giving them the covenant, issuing commands, making promises, and yet Israel was consistently rebellious against the things of God? Nothing in the text says that God was wooing them like Evan in the, in the sense that Evan is saying. God's desires holy. He desires that all men reflect his image in the world. I wish that women would not have abortions and murder their babies, but I'm not going house to house wooing them to not do so. Yet, they resist my will and have abortions. Anyone who rejects the Messiah is unwilling to accept God's command. Calvinists do not say that the commandment is irresistible. We say saving grace is irresistible. So in the argument, you, what Evan is trying to say here is that, see, grace can be resisted. Well, re Reformed folks believe that there's this thing called common grace, and then there's this thing called special grace, saving grace. The grace that actually brings the gift of faith that is translated into salvation. That grace they did not resist. We know this to be absolutely true. How do we know this? Well, we can turn to other sections in Scripture where God is clearly, deliberately not 
giving it to the Jews. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. What is Evan going to do about that? See, because in his scheme of this maximally great being that would love people to the greatest extent possible, how in the world could the Father be a maximally great being if he's deliberately hiding things from the wise? The wise are humans. I mean, Evan Minton says that God loves the devil. God loves the devil. He loves the demons. See, this is what happens when an Arminian gets into a conversation with someone who knows Scripture and will actually challenge and push on that Arminian. I have challenged and pushed on Evan, and other people have too, and he's ended up embracing annihilationism. He's ended up saying, God loves the devil, God loves demons, God loves Satan, for crying out loud. This is the kind of stupidity that ends up following from beliefs like this because Evan desperately has to defend libertarian free will above everything else that has to be defended. And so he will embrace pernicious heresy if it means that he rescues libertarian freedom. And that is exactly what he's doing. He goes on and talks about where Stephen in Acts chapter 7 resists the Holy Spirit and da-da-da-da-da. Again, nothing in the text. I'm going to say it one more time so that people understand. Unless God regenerates your heart, you're going to resist the Holy Spirit. And what is resisting the Holy Spirit? It's rejecting the prophets. It isn't some wooing that, that is going on where the Holy Spirit is wooing you inside and, and trying to convince you that Jesus is the great uh, solution to all your problems. And if you'll just, that is not what Scripture's talking about. That's a modern idea, folks. It's foreign to Scripture. When Stephen said you resist the Holy Spirit, what was he saying? You refused to believe the prophet's and you stone them. Just like people today who hear the gospel and reject the gospel are guilty of resisting the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit's actually trying to woo and convince and save people in their hearts like Evan's trying to claim. That idea is foreign from the Bible. It doesn't exist in Scripture. It didn't exist in that society. It's an insertion. It's what we call anachronism a modern concept being read into ancient scripture. Calvinism nowhere teaches that men do not resist the Holy Spirit. What the Calvinist says is that all men resist God. They resist the Holy Spirit by way of rejecting the divine command and anything the prophet says or the prophets say because he is an enemy of God. He is unable to do otherwise. He will resist because his nature is hostile to God, period. See, Minton assumes provenient grace that they're able to, to do these things if only they would just act with their will, which Evan apparently thinks is free. 
even in an unregenerate condition. Christianity doesn't teach that. Scripture testifies to the contrary. Minton calls up texts that are not actually dealing with the abilities of depraved men. He calls up texts that describe, that describe what depraved men do and thinks that he's establishing, see, they're able. He isn't establishing ability. All he's doing is reading texts that describe what unregenerate men do. None of these texts talk about what unregenerate men are capable or able to do. And the texts that talk to that, like 1 Corinthians 1, 14, or 2, 14, Romans chapter 8, Ephesians, Romans 3, he ignores. You see, he ignores. Romans 1, he doesn't dive into those passages. He runs from them. Of course, unregenerate men are unwilling. Every Calvinist thinks that and believes it, believes it and affirms it. All unregenerate men are unwilling to acknowledge God and to submit to him. Plain and simple. They will remain unwilling so long as they remain unregenerate. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case? Who? Those who are perishing. Those who can't see the gospel. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What Minton wants us to believe is that men can actually see the truth of the gospel the truth of Christ, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, and actually say, nah, I'm good. That's what Minton wants us to believe. Every time God opens eyes to see the truth, the truth transforms, folks. God does not open men's eyes and then have men snub their nose and say, no, thank you. A blind man is unable to see the truth, and in the case of sinners, unwilling. By nature, the sinner loves their blindness. They are willingly blind, and they love being blind. They don't want to see the truth because they are depraved in that area of their life. Minton just doesn't get it. He misses the point entirely. The Father brings, draws people to Jesus, and does what, and what does Jesus do with them? Those that the Father draws to Christ, what does he do with them? Those that the Father draw, he raises them up on the last day. Everyone the Father draws gets raised up on the last day. So if Minton's interpretation is right, then we are left with universalism. If all men are drawn, all men are going to be raised up on the last day. Let me phrase it the way Minton's interpretation requires. All that the Father woos to Jesus, Jesus will not cast out, and Jesus will raise them up on the last day. Is that true? Is that really what John is saying there? Is that what Jesus is saying? No, it is not true. I'm not arguing that men don't resist God. I'm arguing that God doesn't woo people in the modern sense of the term wooing, the way we understand it. It is an Arminian rescuing device that doesn't rescue. It's like someone drowning needing a flotation device, and Evan Minton tosses you a brick or a cinder block. Good luck. 
Now, the second point, the second response, I attacked, God wants all people to be saved. I attacked Minton's idea of this maximally great being who would love, um, he says he loves all people to the deepest extent possible, right? So what has happened here is that Minton has come up with this idea of, in his mind, of what a maximally great being would do. And now he's trying to impose that on God. But there's nothing in the Bible that says God loves all people to the deepest extent possible. In fact, the Bible says God hates the wicked every day. The Bible says God hated Esau. Uh, The Bible doesn't speak really well of Judas and of those people who reject Christ. So... Evan, in response to my attack and question, does God love the devil? Does God love Satan? Does God love demons? Shockingly comes back and says, yes, he does. So I don't know who can read Genesis through Revelation. Just let the Bible talk to them. And at the end of that, you collect all these things that the Bible says about Satan, understanding that it's God speaking, and conclude that God loves Satan. I don't know anyone who could do that. But Evan Minton, because he is desperate to preserve libertarian freedom, does exactly that. Because he's desperate not to lose an argument. Because he's desperate to preserve his idea of a maximally great God or a maximally great being. He actually is reduced to having to say, God loves Satan. It is ludicrous at at its core. Now, Evan actually speculates, why didn't God redeem any of the fallen angels? Notice that, folks. He didn't redeem any of them. No second chance for angels. No redemption for angels. Right? Evan says, now perhaps in assuming a human nature, he couldn't also have assumed the nature of a fallen angel. Since he couldn't have assumed the nature of a fallen angel, he couldn't save them, even though he wants to. So here we go. Here we have a God who wants to save fallen angels, but he can't because he's not capable of taking on a, an angelic nature in conjunction with a human nature. It's not possible. What? Why not? If it's possible for Jesus Christ to have two, one person having two natures, logically speaking, what would be the contradiction in him having the nature of a human being, the nature of an angel, and the the nature of God, a divine nature? Understand this, folks. The doctrine of omnipotence says that God can do everything that is logically possible. God can do everything that is logically possible. There is absolutely nothing, logically speaking, that is contradictory to Jesus taking upon himself both the, the nature, having three natures in, in one person. If he can have two, There's logically no reason to think he cannot have three. Okay? So what 
what um, what um, um, Minton is doing here is called special pleading, and it it is a coloss colossal failure. Minton's claims are absolutely implausible, top to bottom, and anybody worth their salt, anyone who studied logic, anyone who's studied philosophy, would look at this argument and say this kid is absolutely playing games. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. Utterly ridiculous. God loves Satan is absurd. It's contrary to the, to the revelation of Scripture that we see from Genesis to Revelation. The claim that God cannot take on an angelic nature is logically untenable and a denial of the doctrine of omnipotence. So now you have Minton actually denying that God is all-powerful. God must love all people to the deepest extent possible is a basis claim that has no exegetical warrant whatsoever. The truth is that God could have created the kind of world in which all people could have freely chosen not to sin. A world without evil. He could have done that. There's no logical reason for why God had to create a world that has evil in it. Remember, to say that God can't do something is to say that it's logically impossible. If it's logically possible, then God can do it. Right? God can't sin. Why not? It's logically impossible. He's holy. His nature is holy. Perfectly holy. Infinitely holy. To sin would be unholy. That's a contradiction. Got it? It's, it's incredible when you read some of this stuff. A God who supposedly loves the way Minton claims would have done exactly that. He would have created a world far different from the one we see. Minton's argument about the maximally greatest being is actually, is actually fantastic fodder in the hands of the skeptic who doesn't want to accept the existence of God. Such a being cannot possibly exist as you describe, Evan. And this world have evil in it the way that we see it. It's impossible. There could be no being like that. So it contradicts reality. It contradicts the Bible. And it's a really bad argument. Evan knows that he's on shaky ground. And it's why, over the course of time, his interest in these subjects has forced him into becoming an annihilationist. His philosophy clearly dictates his hermeneutic, resulting in bad theology and even heresy. Now, he criticizes me for putting forth the secret and revealed wills paradigm. Well, um... He's kind of, Evan is making fun of this secret will notion. I got news for you, folks. Uh, to say that God has a secret will is to say something that is absolutely taught by Scripture. It's not my problem, it's His. The secret things, according to Deuteronomy 29, 
Number one, in order for there to in order for Deuteronomy 29, 29 to say what it says, there have to be secret things. These secret things are contrasted with the law, the things that have been revealed. That's where we get the secret and revealed wills from, Evan. We didn't make it up like provenient grace. We didn't make it up like this maximally great being that has to love to the greatest extent possible. None of those things are taught in Scripture whatsoever. But the things that are taught in Scripture, that there is a secret thing, a secret will, a secret plan that God has not revealed to us, and one that he has, actually do come from Scripture. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Not only are they secret, they belong to God, not us. On purpose. They're hidden. Hands off. If we want to acknowledge God and submit to him, hands off. Acts chapter 1, verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Another clear example that God has a secret will that is unrevealed to us and one that is revealed to us. So you can, you can uh, castigate this idea, mock it, make fun of it, dismiss it all you want. The fact of the matter is, it is well established by the plain teachings of Scripture. You don't like that? Nothing, nothing more to say about that. And then Evan uh, moves from this to Molinism. Now look, uh, Molinism is a Roman Catholic heresy invented by the Jesuits to defend their unbiblical arguments against the Dominicans who were eating their lunch. If you're interested in a solid refutation of Molinism, I would recommend Francis Turden's Institutes of Elenctic Theology, Volume 1, pages 212 through 218. It's an excellent section on why this is impossible. Number one, God's natural knowledge. Two, two, knowledge, two types of knowledge in God. Natural knowledge, which is knowledge of all possibilities. This is founded on God's omnipotence, his, his unlimited power and, and knowledge. God's knowledge of all possibilities is God's natural knowledge. The other type of knowledge is God's free knowledge. That is God's knowledge of all future things. We have had all these possibilities out there, but the minute something becomes a future thing, it's no longer in the realm of possibilities, it's in the realm of instantiation. It's actual. So you have the possibilities and the actual, the real, the state of affairs that obtain. Those two things, right? That knowledge, God's knowledge of future things, is founded on God's will, God's decree. There is nothing in the nature of things that is not either a possible thing or a future thing. That proposition itself precludes the very possibility of this device called middle knowledge. If you know all possibilities and you know all future things, there's no place for middle knowledge. There's no reason for it. It is an invention because the Jesuits hated the doctrine of predestination 
and they came up with middle knowledge to get around it. Jesus died for all people. Minton says in this section, Dr. Dings begs a question against an inclusive view, inclusivist view of the unevangelized and uses this as an attempt at justifying, restricting the universal language. Uh, what reason does he give to think inclusivism, that is that people can be saved through the work of Christ by responding to God's general revelation in nature and conscience, even though they never heard the propositional content in the gospel? Uh, I, he says that I don't give any reason, but I do give a reason. I talk about the fact that, and this is what I criticized in Minton, I talked about the fact, fact that, uh, the, that Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. All right. So I started with the. I started with this: you cannot enter heaven if you're not pleasing to God. Okay. You cannot enter heaven if you are not pleasing to God. I think that's uncontroversial. You cannot be pleasing to God without faith. Okay, I think that's uncontroversial. How do we get faith? Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You cannot have faith unless you have heard the word of God. That's special revelation, not general revelation. So essentially what that means is if you follow that syllogism, You cannot get into heaven if you have never heard the word of God because you can't have faith. And if you don't have faith, you can't please God. And if you can't please God, you can't get into heaven. It's logic, Evan. That's what it is. That's what it's called, logic. It's a simple syllogism. So I didn't ignore it at all. I made a, an, a case uh, against this idea of in, in inclusivism. Um, so there you go. Uh, da, 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 da. What does he go to next? Um, oh, he's. Atonement. Atonement. Evan and every Arminian that I've ever talked to wants to read a, a concept of potentiality in the atonement. But there is no concept of potential in the atonement. Either your sins are atoned for or they're not. If your sins are not atoned for, you're going to hell. If your sins are atoned for, God has no basis to send you to hell, no basis to condemn you. If Jesus atoned for the sins of the whole world, then the whole world's debt has been paid. Minton ignores my objection here. If all sins are actually atoned for, then even refusal to believe the gospel is atoned for. And that leaves God without a legal basis to condemn anyone. Minton doesn't get it. Nowhere in the entire Bible is atonement made simply available for those who want to pick it up and run with it. That, the, that idea does not exist. If you study atonement in the Old Testament, 
It doesn't exist there. Why would we think that it would exist in the New Testament? It does not. John 2.2 does not say, 1 John 2.2 does not say that Jesus is the potential propitiation for all of those who will accept it. It says he is the propitiation. He is the propitiation. All is used in a qualifying sense in a number of places in the Scripture. And it is the whole of Scripture that helps us recognize when this is happening and when it is not. The idea of potential is not present in the grammar or the construction used by John. And if you look at John in other places, he uses all in a way that is qualified as well. John 12, 32. I'll draw all men to myself. Don't You render that expression meaningless if you say Jesus can draw people to himself who've never heard his name. It's, it's, that's a meaningless idea. It's absurd. Paul talks about the world in the same way John does in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Does he mean the whole world? The world is the world is the world, right? Everybody's now been reconciled to God through Christ. Universalism. I mean, that's a favorite text of universalists. It's absurd. See what happens when Arminianism actually runs its course? You can be saved apart from the gospel. You, you, you can be saved through general revelation. Uh, provenient grace uh, destroys the sin nature, apparently. Now you have abilities that the Bible really doesn't talk about, has no idea that you have the ability to do these things now through, through provenient grace. Atone doesn't actually mean atone. It's just potential atonement. The whole world is saved now. You end up with annihilationism. I mean, there's all kinds of heresy that comes out of Arminian theology for people who want to press it for consistency. Minton is ill-equipped to handle the text, and I blame this on his love of and fascination with philosophy rather than straightforward exegesis. Not all people will be saved. Yeah, well, well not much to say there. I'm going to close with this final argument. Minton seems closer to Pelagianism to me than he does classic Arminianism. The most damning heresy that Minton posits is redemption apart from the gospel. All right? Not, not to mention his denial of omnipotence. Uh, even though he would say, I don't deny omnipotence, he does. When you say that God could not have taken on the nat an angelic nature, even though he took on a human nature, you don't have any good reason to say that other than to rescue your, your philosophy, your argument. It's a denial of omnipotence. There's no logical reason why God wouldn't be able to do that. There's nothing inherently contradictory about it, period. Simple. One cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again, right? That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. How do you get born again? One is born again by the word of God. Peter tells us this, right? Incorruptible seed, the word of God. Therefore, unless one hears the word of God, they cannot be born again. Unless Minton 
wants to make what Peter said absolutely meaningless too. If Minton thinks that people can enter heaven apart from the word of God, regenerating their heart, he will need to provide exegetical support for this view. I can promise you that is not something Minton can do. Minton, in a desperate, is in a desperate attempt to preserve autonomous freedom in the creature, has denied that the gospel of Christ is necessary for salvation. It's completely unnecessary. He has denied that faith in Christ is necessary for salvation. He has denied that the word of God is necessary for the new birth and hence salvation. Essentially, he has denied that only the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God into salvation. Think Galatians 1, 6 through 8, folks. If anyone comes to you preaching another gospel, let him be accursed. According to men, all men, or according to Minton, all men are born fully capable of interpreting creation apart from the work of God through the gospel and come to faith to God or faith in God apart even from Christ, the gospel or the word of God. Wow. I will submit to you that this understanding of the nature of fallen sinners this understanding of the, the, the nature, the purpose, the intent of the gospel, the necessity of the gospel, the necessity of the word of God is heresy and should be rejected by anyone who has, who has a modicum of the spirit of God in their being. And anyone that they hear talking like this should be removed from the community because they are a toxic poison. All right, thank you for listening to The Reformed Reason. I hope that I have said something that has kind of sparked your interest, that has been enlightening, that has been edifying, uplifting, uh, challenging even. Um, and look, steer clear of guys like Evan Minton. Steer clear of Arminians who end up believing garbage like this. All right. Keep your chin up. Keep the faith. Continue to be the light of the world that God has called you to be. Continue to image God in creation. Continue to share the gospel with everyone you come into contact with. God bless. One final thing for Mr. Minton. When a debt is paid, it's paid. Doesn't matter if I accept the fact that someone paid my debt. The debt is paid. It's no longer owed. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com This is my piece of dirt and you're rambling, don't rap.